Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. John, chapter 9, as we continue our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Uh, We are at a time in our study of the life of Christ where the cross is clearly seen now on the horizon. We are not far from the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And from this point forward in our series, we're going to be leaning most heavily on the Gospel of John. Uh, each, Each gospel writer, though all telling true things about Jesus, each have their own themes, uh, their own emphasis, their overall message. And so as we let the Apostle John carry us forward towards the cross, and as we stay with his account, we'll be better able to catch his unique message. Uh, John's gospel, as you may know, is significantly different in content compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He tells us many details that the others don't tell us, and, uh, and we'll see that he devotes more space to the final days of Jesus' life than any of the other gospel writers. And so, uh, as we approach Jesus' Passion Week in our study, uh, I think we'll be well served by staying in the narrative flow of one book, though, as always, we're going to cross-reference with the, with the other gospels to be helpful. However, we are not at Passion Week yet in the timeline. That's still a few months away. But even now, Opposition against Jesus is continuing to mount. The storm clouds are gathering, uh, and they're growing thicker. And the shadow of the cross hangs very heavy now over everything that happens. One of the major themes that we see in the Gospel of John is light versus darkness. And what we will see moving forward in this series is that as the darkness deepens, the light blazes ever brighter. As John tells us in the very first chapter of his book, Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, with that said, please stand with me now, and let's read from John chapter 9, and let us see and savor and behold the light, which is Christ, ever clearer. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. The Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who... Used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day 
when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word. Father, I pray that you would help us to treat it with the reverence it deserves. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we may behold and see wonderful things in your word, that you would open our ears so that we may hear what the Spirit has to say to us through this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
When you think about the, uh, the people in society, in our world, who would be pitied, who would be pitied more than anyone else, who, who would be regarded as the neediest, as, as those uh, to be most pitied in the most dire of straits, what kind of people come to your mind? This morning, we meet a man who in the first century Jewish society would have been considered as about near the, the bottom of the totem pole as you could get. Here we have a man who is not only blind, but he's been blind from birth. And not only is he blind from birth, but he's a beggar. His family's so poor they can't even provide for him. His entire life has been a life of stumbling around in the darkness, begging and depending on support. In fact, uh, people would have regarded this man as someone who was cursed by God. Somebody who, as a result of their sin, is under the very judgment of God. And this line of thinking is actually what opens up the story in chapter 9. And so, we begin with this issue of physical blindness. Physical blindness questioned. Physical blindness questioned. When the disciples encounter this blind beggar, it raises a very troubling question for the disciples. Look at verse 1. As he, he being Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, this reflected the common notion that personal suffering is directly related to personal sin. So, if you were healthy and wealthy, then God's favor was upon you. If you were sick or poor, it was your fault. It meant that God was frowning upon you and withholding His blessing and withholding His favor. This man in chapter 9 is poor and disabled, so he would have been seen by many as doubly cursed, doubly pathetic, doubly judged by God. And the reason why the man's parents are brought into the discussion is because the man is not just blind, but he was born blind. So if this man didn't somehow sin in utero, and by the way, some people did think that back then, but if this man did not sin in utero, uh, then it must have been his parents' fault and the family is being punished for their sins. And so they would come to the conclusion that God is obviously angry and He's out to get them because they've done something wrong. And so the story starts with a theological problem, and it's a problem ultimately about judgment. Who is under the judgment of God and why? And that's very important to remember because I think this concern is a key to understanding one of the main points of this story. This man born blind is a theological problem for the disciples as they scratch their heads and they wonder about this. And look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, Jesus is not disagreeing with the scriptural understanding that all sin and suffering is an after-effect of Adam and Eve's original rebellion in Genesis 3. Jesus instead takes issue with the belief that there is a necessary line between personal suffering and personal sin. Now, Scripture does show us that sometimes this is the case. And we can understand that, right? If I get drunk on a Friday night... And I go out and I take my car for a drive and and I wind up totaling it. We We can draw some lines, can't we, between my suffering and my sin in the situation. So sometimes we we do suffer as a consequence of our own sin, and God can use that to bring us to repentance. This type of suffering, suffering the psalmist describes in Psalm 119 where he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
But what the Scriptures are showing us also is, is that many times there is no clear line between someone's personal suffering and someone's personal sin. So we need to be careful here, because if we believe that there's always a clear line, uh, it's going to cause us, first of all, to be judgmental towards others, isn't it? Uh, We're going to look at somebody going through hard times. We're going to look at people who never seem to be able to catch a break. And our instinct then is going to be to to, to point a finger of judgment at that person and and think, well, they must have done something wrong. Uh, There must be some sort of sin in their lives. And that's why they're going through what they're going through right now. That's what Job's friends did. Remember a couple years ago, we went through the book of Job. Job's wonderful, delightful friends who, who thought Job's problems, his suffering was related to something specific that he had done wrong, and God was getting him back, payback. So that belief can cause you to be harshly judgmental towards others. It's also going to lead you to personal torment and false guilt in your own life, Uh, when you automatically assume every time that you suffer that you've done something wrong, and so now that's coming back around to bite you. Uh, Not only can that cause personal torment, but really can also lead uh, to anger towards God. Well, I'm reading my Bible every day, and I'm still suffering. I'm doing the right thing, God, and I'm still sick. God, I'm going to church, and I'm trying to be a good Christian, and so why is my life still a mess? Why, Why aren't you blessing me? Friends, that kind of thinking has more in common with Eastern religion and the notion of karma than with Christianity. Uh, This this pagan idea that that you are somehow earning blessings and good things in this life by being a good person. And through being bad, that's going to bring bad things into your life. Now, certainly in eternity, in eternity, we will see God's people enter into the fullness of God's blessing in the new heavens and the new earth. But even that is all due to grace and not due to something that we have earned. And we'll also see in eternity that the wicked will experience everlasting punishment. But right now, in this life, that's not how it works, is it? Often we see people who are living in rank, utter rebellion against God, and they are living lives that are very prosperous, materially speaking. Uh, We see wicked people in total health, never getting sick, living a life of ease and comfort, and often we see God's people living in pain and suffering and poverty. And so many times the suffering that we see is innocent suffering. And when I say innocent, I don't mean to say that such sufferers are without personal sin. What I mean is that they did not do something specific that caused God to respond by giving them suffering as payback. The general religious atmosphere in Jesus' day didn't really have a category like that. They didn't have a category for innocent suffering. And so the disciples are perplexed. They look at this blind man. They see a theological problem. They're they're thinking, somebody has sinned here. This guy's got it bad. But, But who sinned? And Jesus turns to them and offers one of the most succinct summaries in the Bible of yet another reason God permits suffering, an unexpected reason. And a hopeful reason. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says there is a purpose in this man's suffering, and it's not payback for sin. Instead, the purpose, the purpose is glory. That the very works of God might be put on display in him. And that is gloriously good news for God's people. 
Because not only can one be a sufferer and that suffering not be his fault, but more than that, God has a divine, glorious purpose in your suffering, which means that your suffering is not meaningless and it's not in vain. This notion shatters the hopelessness of a rigid, harsh religious system and the hopelessness of modern naturalistic evolution. While the secular, atheistic, evolutionary worldview carries the implication that your suffering is a meaningless accident and it just thinks to be you, a scriptural understanding of the universe offers hope and a message that even our greatest hardships have a larger purpose and point, under the, point, point to the sovereignty of a good God. So it's not on the, the one hand you're a product of evolution, tough luck, and it's not on the other hand a simplistic, well, you've sinned and that's why you're suffering, so repent or else you're going to get more of it. It's rather, even if I never fully understand why this is happening, I know that God has a purpose for these things, and my suffering is not some sort of cosmic joke, it's not a cosmic accident, it's not useless, and it's not in vain. And so Jesus brings good news. This blind beggar is not some poor, useless drain on society, and he's not a cog in the evolutionary machine that needs to be purged and done away with and replaced, and he's not some horrible lowlife and God's repaying him, and he's not a theological problem. He's a person, a person with dignity, made in the image of God and someone that God has plans for and purposes for. This man is ignored and abandoned by the world, but not by God. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says that this, man, this man's suffering is not in vain, and it's not due to him being punished for sin. There's a purpose in this that you know nothing of, but now is about to be revealed. And so we see in this passage physical sight restored. Physical sight restored. Look at verse 5. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. That's a a very interesting uh, parenthetical statement there from John, which means sent. He wants to tell us what it it means and and perhaps is alluding that, that Jesus is the true sent one, sent by God. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is really strange, isn't it? (laughs) What in the world is this all about? There's a lot of debate about why Jesus heals in this way. Why not just say, be healed? Why the spit? Why the mud? Another theme of John's gospel is Jesus as creator. Jesus as creator. In the beginning of his book, John tells us that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Thousands of years ago, Jesus created the heavens and the earth, and that creation was spoiled. It was tainted. It was corrupt due to man's sin and and, and man's rebellion against him. Man became sinful through and through, prone to sickness, spiritually blind, and on the road to death and hell. And and so now Jesus comes into the world with a ministry to save a corrupt world. And watch this. It's a ministry of recreation. A ministry of recreation. If Jesus is the great creator God, 
then he also has the power to recreate. And John shows us uh, this in in his gospel over and over again. Uh, In chapter 3, Jesus takes water, and what does he do with that water? He recreates it into wine. Or how about in chapter 6? He takes a small piece of bread, and what does he do with that? He recreates it over and over and over and over again until there's enough food for thousands. And here in chapter 9 now, we see again Jesus uh, as creator God, and he is recreating. In the beginning, Jesus created man from what? From the dust of the ground, Genesis chapter 1. Here in John chapter 9, what does Jesus do? He takes the dust of the earth and he recreates the eyes of this man. All that has to happen on a cellular and neurological level is being formed and for the first time in his life, this man opens his eyes and he is now able to see. And so the purpose of this man's blindness was to glorify God, to put something of God's might and power on display, to point to Jesus as as, as creator and recreator. And now, the message here, we have to be careful about this, the message here is not that God has permitted your suffering so after a few years he'll, he'll take it away. Healing is not the only way that God is glorified in suffering. The Apostle Paul underwent enormous suffering in his life, and he called it a thorn in the flesh. He called it a messenger from Satan. And three times Paul prayed to Jesus for relief, and each time Jesus said no. But it did not mean that Paul was in sin. As with the blind man, God had a glorious purpose in Paul's suffering, and Paul comes to realize this, and so he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12... He, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Sometimes God glorifies himself through the healing and removal of suffering. Other times, he glorifies himself by upholding the weak sufferer and giving him grace and giving him strength to endure. And it enables us then to see and savor God more. Now, in healing this blind man, Jesus is showing us something about himself beyond the fact that he can repair broken bodies. What did Jesus say just before he opened the eyes of this man? Look at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus is, is driving this point home over and over. We saw him do it in last week's message, didn't we? In John chapter 8, where Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles, that that great feast where where the Jews would light these huge 75-foot candelabras, and the blazing glow could be seen all night long from a distance in the surrounding areas, cutting through the darkness. And Jesus declared also there, in that moment, that He is the light of the world. And so, this ongoing theme in John's gospel of light and darkness is further developed in chapter 9 as Jesus is declaring Himself through His actions to be the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah wrote very long ago in Isaiah chapter 42, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. 
Isaiah is giving us a picture of a world full of spiritually blind people being held captive in dungeons. And he foretells that one great day a liberator will come to release prisoners from captivity, and this liberator will be a light to the world. Part of the corruption that happened to humanity when our forefather Adam rebelled against God was a spiritual blindness. And so, while that poor beggar was uh, born physically blind, so all of us are born blind spiritually. This story begins with a man born with physical blindness. But when Jesus opens this blind man's eyes, he is giving us a sign that, that the Creator has come into the world not simply to recreate pupils and retinas, but that He's come to recreate something that was warped and broken ages ago, which is an ability to see God rightly. And so by the time the chapter ends, the man's spiritual sight will have caught up with his physical sight as God enables this man to see Jesus for who he really is and enables this man to respond rightly to Jesus. And so now we move on to another point in this story. We see spiritual blindness exemplified. Spiritual blindness exemplified. John often makes the use of of irony throughout his gospel. And one of the ironies in this story, and you probably caught it, is that spiritual blindness is best exemplified and put on display not by the man born blind, but by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, people who thought they were righteous and people who fancied themselves as servants of God, and yet in this story they totally miss Jesus and who He is in all of this. They're blind. Verse 14, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. You know that's trouble, right? Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The music should go through your head. Dun, dun, dun. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Sparks are going to fly now. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Is it not stunning to you how thick-headed these people are? How they are totally missing it. Jesus has just reshaped and recreated human eyeballs with dirt and spit. And you would think that they would respond with amazement and awe. But the best response they can come up with is, Sabbath breaker! Now, there's no law in the Bible that says you cannot help someone in need on the Sabbath. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. But spiritually blind people will always find an excuse to reject Jesus Christ. Even if it's an absurd excuse. You know why? Because men love darkness more than light, because their deeds are evil, John tells us earlier in his book. These people find reasons to reject Jesus. We find reasons to reject Jesus today. And make no mistake, to receive only a part of Jesus and to reject the parts you don't like is rejection of Jesus. Often people recreate Jesus into an image that they prefer. And when that happens, we're creating an idol. 
So while the Pharisees say, Sabbath breaker, people today say, well, I don't like what Jesus says about hell. Or I don't like what he says about him being the only way to God. Uh, What are people doing when they talk that way? They are rejecting the light. And they're not recognizing and appreciating Jesus for all that he is. And they are demonstrating that they are blind and they find excuses for not going all in for Jesus. Look down at verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. Them saying that, that's a way of, of putting him under oath putting this man under oath, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees' vision is so twisted that instead of seeing Jesus as good and beautiful, they see him as a sinner. This is the essence of spiritual blindness. Not that you don't see Jesus at all, but that instead you see a twisted version of Jesus. Spiritually blind people can look right at Jesus and not see him as he truly is. And so the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world, by the way, God of this world, that's Satan, that's who that's talking about. In in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is saying that spiritually blind humanity doesn't see or savor the glory of Christ as displayed through the gospel, and since they don't see Christ, who is God's very image, they consequently don't really see God. Imagine watching a sunset with a blind man. You yourself can enjoy the sunset, you can appreciate the sunset, you can be captivated and motivated by the beauty of the sunset, you can be moved by that, your heart can be drawn towards that in wonder, but your blind friend doesn't see it. You can point their face and their eyes directly towards that sunset and he will just shrug his shoulders unmoved. Scripture's telling us that blind humanity is like that about God, about Jesus, Blind humanity looks at Jesus, but their hearts are not moved by him. They don't appreciate his glory. They don't appreciate his beauty, and they aren't drawn towards him. Some of you in this room have people close to you that you've shared the gospel with over and over again. You've you've pointed them not to a glorious sunset, but you pointed them to the glorious Son of God, and Jesus is boring to them, or maybe even repulsive. They just don't get it because they just don't see it. They're blind to the truth. But Scripture doesn't just lay our blindness at the feet of the devil. The Scripture also describes humanity as willingly pushing back against the light and retreating back into the darkness because we love the darkness more than light because our deeds are evil and we don't want our sin to be exposed. And that leads to another symptom of spiritual blindness, which is self-righteous pride. The exchange between the Pharisees and the beggar reaches an explosive climax. Look down at verse 33. The man says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Really? And they cast him out. They cast him out. Now, this is amazing. Look, consider how they lash out, out at this man. You are born in utter sin, they said. Now, they're probably there referring to the fact that he was born blind. And they're clinging to this belief that the blindness was a result of God's punishment for his sin or his parents' sin. 
Now, this is more irony in the Gospel of John. How? Because the man standing before the Pharisees isn't blind anymore. Yet the Pharisees are apparently blind to that fact. Blinded by by their rage and their prideful self-righteousness, they say he was born in utter sin. And they even call Jesus a sinner. But notice who who they do not acknowledge as sinners. Who do they not see as sinners? Themselves. And now we begin to get the to see the ugly core of spiritual blindness. Now, for certain, the Pharisees surely did not regard themselves as perfect. I don't think anyone would admit that. Even the most arrogant, narcissistic person probably will admit, even if begrudgingly, that they may have occasionally done something wrong. Maybe made a mistake one time in my life or something. I don't know. The problem is not that people tend to think that they are 100% good. The problem is that we tend to think we are good enough. See the difference? Every other religious system and worldview out there believes that there is something that man can do, something that that man can bring to the table to save himself from God's judgment. That there is a belief that though man might not be perfect, if he tries really hard, he can at least be good enough. And that'll be good enough with God. You You go out into the world and you ask people, why they think they're going to heaven, and and probably the number one answer that you're going to get is, I'm basically a what? Boy, you've heard it before, haven't you? Some of you probably even said it before you were saved. I'm basically a good person. And yet, the Bible is the only religious book that is painfully and brutally honest about our situation. You won't get this from the Quran. You won't get this from the Hindu scriptures. You won't learn this in Mormonism or from the Jehovah's Witnesses who visit your door. You won't get this from Judaism or from Roman Catholicism. Only the Bible has the courage to tell you that the human condition is much worse than you think. We are spiritually blind. We are held captive and bound in dungeons by Satan. And worse, we are accomplices with him in our slavery and in our blindness. And Scripture is clear that we come into the world with corrupt hearts that hate God. And the Scripture says that our righteous acts, even the so-called good things that we do, are like filthy rags. It's not just that we are not good enough, friends, it's worse. It's that we're not good. I wonder if somebody's pride is being pricked right now by that. Watch out. Don't be like the religious leaders in this passage. The Pharisees looked down on other people because they thought they were superior to others in regards to their own goodness. And their biggest problem is that they did not recognize their need. And the irony is that the Pharisees end up being the ones in this story who are blind. The blind man sees, and the ones who think they see, are blind. They think they know the truth, and they are arrogant in that knowledge. They are offended that a pathetic, low-life, scumbag beggar would teach them the truth, because they have all the answers. They have all the wisdom. My friends, that is perhaps the most dangerous position 
that you could be in. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What does Jesus mean by this? If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. I think here at the end of the story, the metaphor suddenly, subtly reverses. Throughout most of chapter 9, we are to understand seeing as something good and blind as something bad. The man receives physical and spiritual sight, that's good, and the Pharisees are spiritually blind, that's bad. But now the metaphor is altered. Don Carson is very helpful when he writes that at a spiritual level, the blind refers to those who are in spiritual darkness and are therefore lost and know it, just as the blind man repeatedly reemphasizes how little he knows in verses 25 and 36. Jesus came to open their eyes, to give them the light of revelation that will enable them to see. But those who see which is Jesus' cryptic and ironic way of saying those who think they see, those who see, like the Pharisees in this chapter, who make so many confident pronouncements, but who are so profoundly wrong, inevitably reject the true light when it comes. So certain are they that they can see, they utterly reject any suggestion to the contrary and thereby confirm their own darkness. So we really come full circle. The chapter begins with a question about judgment. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind. The chapter ends with a word about judgment. Jesus shifts the focus and says the ones who are judged are those who are spiritually blind but think they see. Now a lot of times we tend to laugh and make fun of the Pharisees for their stupidity. You've you probably done that. I've done that. We shake our heads and we wonder, how, how, how can they be so stupid? How can they be so ridiculous? And we, read them, uh, we read about them persecuting this poor beggar, and we just can't believe how idiotic they are. Friends, the moment we do that is the moment we become like them. We all have a natural sinful bent towards self-righteousness and self-justification, puffing up ourselves and putting down others, overestimating our own righteousness. We need to be cautious. At the beginning of the message, I asked who, is, who in our world is the neediest and most to be pitied. It turns out that the neediest people are not poor beggars who have no physical sight. It is rather those who are spiritually blind and think they see. Finally, in this story, we see spiritual sight exemplified. Spiritual sight exemplified. While the Pharisees' vision became more and more clouded in this story, we see something amazing happening with the beggar. At the beginning of the story, his physical eyes are open, but as the story goes on, we see that bit by bit, his spiritual sight begins to catch up with his physical sight. 
opposite the Pharisees. Right? Unlike the Pharisees, his spiritual sight is becoming sharper and sharper until by the end of the chapter, he sees Jesus for who he is and he responds to Jesus as he should. Look at the progression. Uh, look at verse 10. So they called to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Okay, that's a very basic acknowledgement of something. But by the time you get to verse 17, his vision is a little sharper. Verse 16, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. What's ironic here is that the tables are turning. Throughout the story, the teachers of the religious law are asking this man questions. They come across as the ignorant ones. The Pharisees are the double PhDs in Israel. And yet here, they are in utter confusion, and there is even debate and division in their own ranks as they're trying to figure all this out. And these astute, learned, well-educated, degreed men are now coming to a formerly blind beggar for answers, asking him about the identity of the man who healed him. Asking how he healed him. You see the irony here? It's like these Pharisees are becoming further lost in their blindness while the beggar is seeing reality clearer and clearer. And he's beginning to realize that he has nothing to fear from these religious frauds and hypocrites. There's been much fear described in John's gospel up to this point. People are afraid of the Jewish leaders. In chapter 7, we saw that people would only talk about Jesus in hushed, whispered tones. In this chapter, we see the beggar's own parents throw their son under the bus because they're scared of the Pharisees. But friends, as you see Jesus more and more clearly, the fear of other things begins to fade. And this this former blind man increases in his boldness and stares down. More irony, by the way. He was blind. He's looking right at them. Staring them down, eyeball to eyeball, staring down these religious bullies, these pompous fools who have told him and his parents his whole life that it's their fault that he's blind. They've sinned. They've done wrong. While these teachers sit up on their high and mighty thrones thinking they're awesome. And this beggar sees them. And he sees right through them. And he's beginning to see them for what they really are. Weak and blind. I love his response in verse 27 as these Pharisees continue to push this man further and ask him questions. Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love this guy. He's got spunk. He's really feisty. And he has had it up to here with these folks. And of course, when he says, do you want to be his disciples too? Okay, them's fighting words with the Pharisees, right? He goes on to say, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. More irony, more irony here. They hide themselves in their religion in an attempt to escape the light of Christ, but the irony is that Jesus has already told us that Moses wrote about him. Jesus is on every page of the Pentateuch. But Jesus' opponents can't see it. 
they are blind. If they were truly disciples of Moses, they would see, and they would savor, and they would worship. Verse 30. Again, the spunk, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So so there's this continual progression, uh, this continued clarity of spiritual sight on the part of the beggar. Uh, you, You can trace his understanding throughout the story, right? It's growing. He's gone from simply acknowledging him as a healer to saying he's a prophet, and then saying someone who has come from God and and represents him and speaks for him. But then his spiritual vision grows to 2020 by the end of the story. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. That's kind of funny also, in light of what we know. You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus reveals his messianic identity to this man, and you see what the man's response is in verse 30? Belief and worship. What is worship? Worship comes from an old English expression, worth-ship, worth Ship. Worship is to ascribe supreme worth and value and greatness to something. What you worship is worth more to you than anything else. To worship Jesus is to recognize Him as supremely valuable, as your highest treasure. What do you do with whatever you treasure the most? You live for it. You die for it. What you worship Uh, becomes the blazing center of your universe and your life revolves around that thing. Everything in your life is oriented towards whatever you worship. But the only way to see Jesus as that valuable is to have eyes that are open. And what happened to this beggar in verse 38 is aptly described when he said in verse 25, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now... I see. And that moment, he was more of a theologian than he realized, explaining the work of God in a, in a way far better than the double PhDs of Israel ever could. Really, that sums up salvation, does it not? One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. For those of you in this room who are already saved, remember that you too were born blind. And unlike the physical blindness of the beggar, your blindness is due to your sin. Not just Adam's sin, but your own. You willfully retreated into the darkness, and you willfully shunned Christ, and you were willfully in rebellion against Him. You loved the darkness more than the light because your deeds were evil. That was your life pre-salvation. But the Apostle Paul describes what happened to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, open the eyes of your heart, and now you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And now that you see, you believe. 
Others of you in this room may be finding yourselves stirred by God for the very first time. If that's you, let me tell you something. You are a sinner. You have broken God's laws. Uh, The penalty for that is hell. But God loves sinners so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross. That's what Christmas is ultimately about. He sent his son into the world to take the penalty that sinners deserve upon himself. And Jesus has not only died, but Jesus has risen. So now if you believe in him, if you place him at the center of your life and your universe, ascribing worship to him through turning from your sins and following after him, you'll be forgiven. Eternal life will be yours. Your life will be changed right now in the present. And heaven will be your home in the future. Because he's the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life.